Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Brady McCartney, your host today. I'm joined by Colleen Wessel McCoy, author of Freedom Church of the Poor, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor People's Campaign, published by Fortress Press. She is an assistant professor of Peace and Justice Studies and the director of the Masters of Arts in Peace and Social Transformation program at the Earlham School of Religion. Colleen Wessel McCoy, welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for being here. Um, So to start, uh, would you please tell us a bit about yourself, your scholarly background, and how you became interested in this topic? Yeah, so um, I have been working on the Poor People's Campaign of 1968, which was the project that Martin Luther King Jr. was working on in the last years of his life uh, when he was assassinated. And I, I came to this topic actually out of being part of networks of grassroots community organizing leader, community leaders who were pointing back to this moment in 1968 as a moment that offered insights for their organizing work today. Um, and it's a, it's a, you know, it's a national network of groups that are working on many different fronts of struggles. But I, you know, I was a, I was doing my graduate work at Union Theological Seminary when I came into contact with some of these community groups, and you know, they were really hungry to be thinking more about this era of King's organizing work, um, and sort of charged me with the task of of sort of jumping into it as my my dissertation work. Um, a lot of these groups are some of the key leaders who went on to form the what is called the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. And that was a campaign that started on the 50th anniversary of the 1968 campaign. So 2018 launched this campaign that's an ongoing campaign and nationwide campaign um, that's tied to lifting up this moment of, of organizing history, the theological and political insights that were part of the idea in 1968 and carry into today. Um, and so the book is sort of pulling those pieces together and, and really going into the 1968 campaign. And uh, so my, my, my work uh, is in Christian social ethics and peace and justice studies. Those are my sort of disciplinary homes um, but it comes out of uh, this history of the relationship between, you know, what these areas of, of study have to offer ongoing uh, grassroots community and religious leaders uh, who are taking on the crises and, and matters of injustice in places where, th- where they live. Thank you. Um, so, so who is involved in the 1968 Poor People's Campaign? What actions did they take? Um, what were their demands? And I guess critically, um, how were economically poor people integrated into all levels of the campaign? So 1968 falls after many of these landmark victories of the civil rights movement. So it's after the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act. It's after King had won the Nobel Prize. It comes after you know Selma these key moments and, you know, King and those around him are assessing what it is that they have won and a little bit sort of reeling from how intense this period of, you know, this decade or more than a decade has been and seeing the ongoing persistence of poverty 
despite these landmark victories in the ongoing persistence of racism and now the Vietnam War. And King talks about these triple evils tying together poverty, racism, and war. Uh, he sometimes he uses slightly different words, um, you know, talking about war as militarism and uh, poverty as economic exploitation, but really tying these three, you know, white supremacy, poverty, and war together. And seeing that that it actually, in a way, pulls together a new set of people who are impacted by these three issues. And so King starts to think with others that there are going to be poor people across the country who have uh, a stake in really having a, a revolutionary movement to tackle these these three pieces, these, these three interlocking injustices or evils together. Uh, and he talks about in the way that the, the civil rights movement had been led by, you know, Black people in the South. This is the, you know, tackling legalized segregation, tackling, tackling economic, political, social forms of racism in the South, that in the way that the, the leadership of that movement had been those who had the most to gain and the least to lose uh, in tackling racism, poverty, and war, that there was this new national force that had the potential to come together. And so he starts talking about pulling together poor people across race and ethnic lines and looking at the, you know, not just the South. I mean, he'd already gone to Chicago and worked on organizing uh, in poor urban areas in the North. And then this was even thinking uh, even in a broader scale about who all could potentially come together around a campaign that's taking these three interlocking injustices on and these three evils on in their relatedness. Um, and so he's organizing poor whites, poor Chicanos, poor Native Americans, poor Blacks, um, poor Puerto Ricans, and trying to find not just individual poor people, but trying to find community organizers who are already organizing in their community around issues of poverty, racism, and, and militarism, and bring those people together for a campaign of the poor. So, you know, we can assume that we we know what the sort of conditions of those living in poverty were in 1968, but I think you do a good job of outlining that um, in the book. So, so could you just, you know, update us on this, right? So there's, there's a sense that um, that, I, that you certainly address, right, that at the end of the 60s, um, things may be better for, you know, impoverished Blacks, impoverished, you know, Chicanos, but um, what, what was the actual state of economic poverty in these different communities? So it's interesting, this period is often thought about and talked about as one with really low rates of poverty and really low unemployment rates. Um, the federal poverty rate was a new measure uh, that had just been created a few years earlier. Um, and this was a, the, the 1950s and 60s was a, was a time of, you know, post-World War II ascending economy where, you know, wages were generally tied to productivity. And so as the economy grew, wages grew on average and, and people were doing better than they had been doing in generations before. And at the same time, King pointed out that you can work full-time and still be poor. 
and actually already was pointing to the inadequacy of the federal poverty measure as really measuring how people were doing. And so to pointing to the way that, you know, in the South, um, poor families still didn't have running water. You know, he would visit one of the poorest counties in the in the nation uh, and, and visited um, Marks, Mississippi, and went into a Head Start where the teacher was cutting a single apple to share among the children in the Head Start class because there weren't enough apples. There wasn't enough food for each child to have their own apple. And people testifying about, you know, flooding and, and testifying about, you know, the, this transition from being sharecroppers and being tied to the land in a way that was uh, very directly tied to the slave economy, the sort of, the, you know, these, these lineages of the unfinished business of, of ending slavery and people still living in, in really abject poverty in the South. And then that being true in the North, um, already talking a little bit about the future of deindustrialization. Uh, and, you know, King was not alone in this conversation, but already seeing that that there was going to be a, a move to the service sector and talking about how those jobs were going to be low wage jobs. Uh, and that for 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 millions of people that that despite there being record low poverty rates, although there was still, you know, a 13 percent federal poverty rate and, and a, you know, even though there was a, you know, a three and a half percent unemployment rate people still weren't doing okay. Um, and so there were, they were, you know, really lifting up these stories and lifting up, you know, so I guess one thing to, to talk about also is that this was the same period as Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. And this was a, a an attempt to sort of strengthen some of the New Deal programs and expand some of the programs of the, of President Roosevelt's New Deal um, and then, and so there was renewed attention on poverty in a way, and yet there wasn't a full commitment to that, or it wasn't expansive enough. And so, so part of the poor people's campaign is, is an effort to say, you know, let's really actually have this war on poverty, not just like, and, and not let the war in Vietnam take us away from our work, our, you know, on this renewed emphasis on poverty and at the same time, you know, pointing King was pointing to that even some of the programs proposed in the War on Poverty were not were not enough to actually address the extent and depth and breadth of poverty. And so it was going to take poor people themselves bringing the kinds of stories that he had heard in Marks, Mississippi and other places, bringing those to the national attention and talking about, um, you know, a, a and he didn't call it a war on poverty. He called it a moral revolution of values or talked about it as sort of a radical restructuring of political and economic life and was pointing to the kinds of inequality that was that were that was preventing something like a war on poverty, like really resolving the root of the, the causes of poverty. And um, so it was it was both sort of a let's fully fund the war on poverty but it was actually a lot more than just fully funding the platform of the Democratic Party of, of Lyndon Johnson. It was it was calling for something that was like a beep, deeper uh, and more systematic addressing of systemic racism, poverty and war. Yeah, it reminded me of uh, many 
critiques that we hear these days uh, from a lot of democratic politicians, <laughs> some of whom are called democratic socialist <laughs> politicians. Um, you know, I, I certainly thought about how Bernie Sanders, right, he often gets tarred and feathered as a socialist, which I, th- I think he would say that he is at least a democratic socialist. Um, but his campaign, his message could certainly be rooted in sort of the tradition of Martin Luther King as much as, you know, Eugene Debs, for example. Um, so so, so you're, you're, you're really getting at this sort of broad coalition, this sort of fusion movement that we can talk about uh, with the sort of contemporary Poor People's Campaign. Um, but you talk about how, you know, this campaign was about all races, all ethnicities, and sort of income levels. Um, so why was King so interested in building this multiracial, this multi-ethnic, um, this sort of multi-economic movement um, at the end of his life? Obviously, he didn't know it was the end of his life. Um, but there's 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 a shift that you that you reference in his thinking that seems critical to the Poor People's Campaign and sort of how it took its you know particular shape. Yeah. So. One year before his assassination, actually one year to the day, King gave a speech at Riverside Church in New York City. Um, It's a really beautiful and powerful speech, often called Beyond Vietnam. Um, And in Beyond Vietnam, he sort of puts out, again, this triple evils. And this was not not new, but it was one of his most, most clear sort of public articulations of the interrelatedness of the triple evils and very clearly comes out in opposition to the Vietnam war. And again, this is not the first time he did so, but it was one of the the most public and most pointed uh, public, you know, oppositions to the Vietnam war. And he got really serious backlash from this. The, the, the liberal media sort of, you know, places like the New York times came out, but then also you know, key leaders from the civil rights movement, like key partners in the civil rights movements came out and, re- and rejected or said, they would say things like, you know, that he's out of his place in talking about this issue and that he needs to stick to the issues that impact Black people. He needs to stick to Black issues. And um, and so there was sort of a, a moment of surprise and then, you know, he, and he, he took it he took it pretty hard and he sort of processed it and thought about this experience of people um, being unwilling to go with him in this tying the the lives and and needs of black people to poverty and war in in this direct way and so he's looking for in this period if if those partners are not going to be partners to him in this, if they're not going to be willing to go with him in this, who is? And so he starts to think about this new opportunity to and exactly these, you know, this broader and wider coalition that's possible that could come together. And he calls it, um, you know, he calls bringing together poor people the, the possibility of a new and unsettling force. Uh, and, and actually, this is that in the same line, he calls them a freedom church of the poor, a new and unsettling force, a freedom church of the poor, uh, the dispossessed of this nation can be this new and unsettling force to transform the nation, to unsettle those who are settled now. Um, and, he, and he calls the, the leaders from those communities together in March of 1968. 
Um, and he, he calls them to Atlanta uh, and they have a meeting at Pascal's um, Lodge. Um, and he, what he says when he has this group gathered together is that for one, that he's never been in a meeting like this before. And I think it actually is a pretty historically unprecedented gathering of poor people, community leaders across racial and ethnic lines uh, in U.S. history. And I and so I do think it's not just him that hadn't been in a meeting like that before. I don't think anyone had been in a meeting like that before. And he says what that what they need to do is build power for poor people. Um, and that the, if they can do that, that they can force the nation to say yes to things that they would desire to say no to. And so he's talking about, you know, building the kind of power that can that can push for uh, the radical changes, changes in the political and economic structure of the country he's talking about in this. And so this is his assessment of the force that would be necessary for a moral revolution of values. And he talks about this as being, um, you know, when he talks about it being a freedom church of the poor, a nonviolent army of the poor, a new and unsettling force that he's taught, this is both a political assessment. And then part of what I think is significant is also like a moral and and theological assessment of, of that political assessment. And that those, those pieces go together in King's understanding of, of how change happens and how they can effectively take on poverty, racism, and war without those pieces being siloed from each other. All right. So you've mentioned the Freedom Church of the Poor uh, in your last answer, and it's obviously the title of the book. Um, so what roles did religions, religious leaders, religious people play in the Poor People's Campaign of 1968? Yeah, so this, this term... Freedom Church is a reference to the abolitionist Black church tradition. It's often called Freedom Church, and it became the um, the denominations African Methodist Episcopal, African Methodist Episcopal, Zion. Those are the historic Freedom Churches, um, and it's this abolitionist strand of of the Black church tradition that it, that that fights for and claims liberation as the the work of the church and has leaders um, like Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman who who preach uh, this this gospel of freedom and are um, religious leaders organizing and bringing about and playing this critical role in the successful abolition of slavery. Um, And so King is hearkening back not just to a, a revolutionary movement, but a successful revolutionary movement that transformed political, economic, social, and theological relationships and power in, in the country. And so he talks about a freedom church of the poor. Um, he's hearkening back to the role of Black religious leadership in the abolitionist movement and talking about the, you know, the leadership of the poor along the same lines in this this move building a, a human rights movement to transform political and economic relationships in 1968 and beyond he calls he calls a you know in the same sentence he says freedom church of the poor and nonviolent army of the poor um, this is in uh, 1967 at the end of 1967 right before they announce the poor people's campaign in December of 1968 and this is the, you know, this is the same 
radio lecture where he talks about the dispossessed of this nation be, you know, black and white being this unsettling force that can transform the nation and, you know, by winning, winning the middle and unsettling those who are settled. Um, and so this, re- this religious language in describing their role in a moral revolution of values as, as a freedom church of the poor harkens to this, this tie always in King's thinking. And this, this is something that's consistent across his ministry and organizing career of thinking about his his political strategy is is deeply tied to his theological and biblical understanding of the world, and so he's using, um, you know, biblical language in describing uh, political strategy. Though so he talks about uh, at another another time, he's talking, you know, to the SCLC staff about the the Poor People's Campaign, and the original plan for the 1968 campaign was to bring. 3,000 poor people from across the country to Washington, D.C., to occupy Washington, D.C. And so he's talking about this 3,000, and then he says, wasn't, you know, during Pentecost, didn't they talk about 3,000? Um, and this, and Pentecost also being this moment of people coming together across difference uh, under the Roman Empire, but coming together around a different vision for society. Um, and so King's using this, this biblical image of Pentecost in talking about the Freedom Church of the Poor and the this idea of a poor people's campaign and talks about those 3,000, you know, not as the whole of the poor people's campaign, but that's just, that's the initial 3,000. And that those 3,000 come and occupy and more see this witness of them in, in Washington, D.C., you know, refusing to leave and calling the national attention to racism, poverty, and poor, and then more come. And so then there's waves of poor people coming to Washington, D.C. Um, and, and refusing to, to leave until the nation has, you know, responded adequately to, to their concerns. Um, and so they, and the, the, you know, when they go to D.C., they're going to set up what, what eventually was called Resurrection City. And so, again, here is this, like, really powerful theological idea of resurrection. Um, and their resurrection city. And to a certain extent, it's a reference to, so, so King never saw any of what happens in Washington, DC. King's assassinated April 4th, 1968. That was like three weeks before the campaign was supposed to step off. It was, it was, um, so, so what happens and what we think of as the 1968 poor people's campaign, you know, if you've ever seen images of it, of people, in Washington, D.C., um, in Resurrection City, King didn't get to see any of that. And they actually pulled that off, that campaign off, you know, in their deep mourning and in their deep reeling from the loss of King's leadership. And it, it was actually those who he had pulled together in Atlanta, um, those leaders from across the country, like many of, you know, those were the leaders who actually joined with the SCL Southern Christian Leadership Conference staff in making the Poor People's Campaign a reality, um, despite the obstacles of having just lost Martin Luther King, reeling from that, um, and this was just like a huge undertaking, and they did it. They actually had six thousand people come and live, you know, occupy this Resurrection City in Washington D.C. for forty days 
there were at, at any given moment about 3000 people there. But, you know, because people, some people rotated in and, you know, people, new people would come in and some people would go home. Over 6,000 people registered to stay in Resurrection City. And then on um, the, just before they shuttered Resurrection City, they had um, Solidarity Day, which was um, a huge convening of, you know, a march of 50,000 people in Washington, D.C. in conjunction with the Poor People's Campaign. And so King was not, King was not there for any of that. And so in some ways, Resurrection City is a reference to King and sort of this vision, uh, this political and theological vision is still alive. And it's alive in those who have come together in D.C. Um, but I, you know, there was already, even before the assassination, there was this theological understanding of the significance of, of the poor coming together. Um, and that, and that being, you know, this uh, way that that politically and theologically you can't exactly pick them apart and say these are separate pieces, but that they were just sort of part of the language and the way of thinking about the world around around them and the way of thinking about political strategy was deeply theological. I have to say, when I was reading about uh, Resurrection City, um, I kept thinking about um, Occupy Wall Street, and you've used the term Occupy many times during our interview. Um, and, and I don't remember Resurrection City or the Poor People's Campaign, you know, ever being uh, sort of mentioned and sort of having Occupy as sort of, again, connected to this longer movement. Um, but I, I thought the the connections were, were pretty obvious to me. And, and I was just reflecting on the fact, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I heard stories uh, about the 68 riots after King's assassination. And, you know, I, it was only until I went to, you know, to college that I heard anything about the Poor People's Campaign, even though, um, you know, the six weeks of, you know, occupying um, a space so close to the White House Right. You know, there were clearly permits, you know, and it was done in a way that, you know, I think suggested that it was sort of a legal protest in a way that, uh, you know, is is quite different than, you know, rioting, which which is much more spontaneous, typically. Um, But I I was just amazed at how Resurrection City is sort of faded into the background, um, if people are even aware of it at all. And the Poor People's Campaign, you know, is, is still a footnote. Um, that you don't hear a lot about when you were learning about the civil rights movement, or at least I, I didn't growing up. So I don't, I don't know if you have any, any thoughts about why that might be, but. Yeah, I, I actually, I really appreciate your sort of weaving all of those pieces together. Um, and that resonates a lot with sort of how people who were around at the time, um, talk about that period. Um, so, you know, one, one thing is to say that there's a lot to lift up here in this moment, but at the time it actually felt, I think for a lot of people like a failure, um, that it, it, it did, you know, the the idea that they were going to stay until they got the response and that's not what happened. And so they pulled out some actually, you know, not insignificant policy wins. Um, they negotiated with the, you know, the Johnson administration and, you know, democratically controlled Congress at the time to, to win some things like, you know, food stamps in every county, you know, access to food stamps in every county and additional funding for Head Start and some, some key things that actually, you know, made a difference in people's lives at the time. 
but the overall feeling I, I, from what I, you know, read of primary accounts is, is often one of feeling like a failure and talking about the campaign as a failure. And so, you know, in a lot of ways, what people are lifting up when they talk about the poor people's campaign today is lifting up that, that political and theological vision um, and reminding ourselves that they, you know, that they did have policy wins at the time and trying to reclaim what was actually a felt and experienced in kind of a sad way at the time. Even things like the fact that it rained for most of their time there. And so it was just like wet and muddy and people were cold, even though it was June, people were kind of cold. Um, They couldn't get their clothes clean and couldn't get their clothes dry. And then that's what the media really spent their time talking about and thinking about. So this campaign was designed to sort of be this, you know, this, Freedom Church of the Poor and Nonviolent Army of the Poor. And then the media portrayed them as kind of like pitiful and dirty and poor. And it just sort of like, you know, reiterated all of these stereotypes about poor people. Um, and the idea that people were coming together across difference. And then the media portrayed it as like people were like living in ghettos with like racial and ethnic ghettos within resurrection city and like people were segregated from each other and fighting. And, um, and so like the way that it got portrayed, uh, in the media, I think was demoralizing and, and it just, it wasn't easy and it was hard and it was, it was wet. And so like, there's a, there, I think that's also part of why it doesn't get told and lifted up in the same way. And yet within it, there's been this thread this tradition of people that have continued to that both people who lived in Resurrection City and who were impacted by it and went on to organize in new ways, um, and people who have like heard those stories and heard the you know the articulation of what the 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 political and theological vision was for the Poor People's Campaign, and that carried on in certain organizing traditions for you know a continuous thread all the way until the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival. And I think, you know, your connection to Occupy Wall Street, like, I think there is, there is something that even if it wasn't consciously done, that model of, you know, the idea for Resurrection City in 1968 was that people were going to have certain, like, their needs would be met in Resurrection City. It was going to have, like, a health tent and, you know, uh, a dining hall where people got three meals a day and a library and a childcare center and a poor people's university where people were going to, you know, study uh, poverty, racism and war and, you know, study the the system and think about how to change it. Like that all of these things were going to be the base of operation that then people that that supported people to then take action and and go out into Washington DC during the day and you know go to different sites around the capitol and have like protests and sit-ins and and hearings and you know testify to different departments and that was all supported by this base of operation that was had these survival project aspects to it um, mutual sort of mutual aid survival project aspects um, you know where people's People's, you know, were getting, you know, dental care and clothes and things like that that made it possible for them to then take action. 
And so that model of combining the meeting of immediate needs with advocating for more systemic and structural change, I think is a, is a valuable one. And I think that, that that lesson continues and can be seen in different models that followed. So, you know, one of the groups that was that took part in Resurrection City was poor white uh, groupings from Chicago. And Peggy Terry was a key leader there and High Thurman. And it was young, poor white folks um, who lived on the north side in Chicago. They lived in Resurrection City. You know, they came and took part. Peggy Terry was a key leader. That was the, the grouping that went on to be the young patriots that joined the original Rainbow Coalition with the Young Lords and Black Panther Party of Illinois um, and work with, you know, Fred Hampton and Bobby Lee. And so their experience in Resurrection City of organizing around class and race and militarism tied together, you know, has a connection to the work that they went on to do uh, in Chicago with the original Rainbow Coalition. And then many of those leaders, you know, went on to continue to organize, you know, even after the assassination of Fred Hampton, um, you know, went on to continue and have a lifetime of organizing impacted by that experience of organizing around class, across difference, um, and, and, you know, responding to militarism that included, you know, violent policing that they were experiencing in Chicago and that led to the death of Fred Hampton and other other key leaders. And so, you know, there's examples like that. I also want to lift up the National Welfare Rights Organization, which was another key partner in the Poor People's Campaign. And so the, you know, poor women who were receiving welfare uh, had started organizing in in the 60s, it's like local. So like Johnny Tillman was organizing in California, in the, the Watt, in Watts, in the, um, Nickerson Gardens had started pulling, you know, knocking on doors and pulling other mothers together to organize around being tra- treated respectfully by the welfare office and having, you know, transparency and what kinds of benefits people were entitled to, making sure people were getting their full allotment of benefits and had access to, you know, childcare and job training and the things that people needed. So there were groupings like that around kitchen tables and in community centers across the country uh, organizing around welfare rights. And then that came together in the mid 60s as the National Welfare Rights Organization. Um, And it was, you know, Johnny Tillman and Beulah Sanders were the first key leaders and they worked with um, George Wiley, uh, who sort of brought an organizing model that was gonna tie these groupings together. They had started organizing again, like mostly black women, but also with this vision for including white and brown women as well. Uh, the full, you know, the full breadth of welfare recipients in the country, and so they were organizing both locally and then now nationally as the National Welfare Rights Organization. King came to them in February of 1968 to take part in the Poor Heels campaign. Although actually at first it wasn't King that came to them. King sent some of his lieutenants to meet with them. And Welfare Rights was like, no, we are not going to meet with your new lieutenants. We are going to meet with King. We don't want Abernathy. You know, we want King. And so King came to Chicago 
in in February of 1968 and sat down with them. And they, um, you know, they started asking him about, you know, like the Social Security Amendment of 1967 and its, you know, its impact on welfare and the introduction of work requirements and things like this. And King (laughs) didn't know the answer to the questions that they were asking him. And finally, they said, you know, King, if you don't know the answers, that's okay, but you should just go ahead and admit that you don't know the answers and then we can continue on. Um, and so finally, he said, I, I, you're right, I don't know. And I would appreciate you helping me understand welfare and, and you know, these, this aspect of poverty. And they, so they were some of the key leaders that also pulled off the formulas campaign. They, some of the national welfare rights were some of the key folks that were in Atlanta for that meeting um, when King called for power for poor people and then brought a huge delegation of leaders to to Washington DC for the poor people's campaign many of whom continue to organize today you know Reverend Annie Chambers of Baltimore is a key leader who's still organizing with welfare rights um Beulah Sanders daughter uh Kim is like you know these folks are bringing their whole families to to Washington DC for these camp- for the campaign and um we're just really powerful leaders that continue to organize today as the National Welfare Rights Union. All right. So you've mentioned the National Welfare Rights Organization um, as one of the organizations that helped um, pull off the Poor People's Campaign after King's assassination. Um, But you also mentioned the American Friends Service Committee. Um, So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about their role in the Poor People's Campaign. Yeah, this is a great question. So one of the first places that King went when he was looking for partners in building the Poor People's Campaign is the American Friends Service Committee. And he was, you know, they had been partners for a while. You know, they had been longstanding partners and, you know, he knew that they were going to be on the same page around the war. Um, But they also had, the American Friends Service Committee had ties to community organizing across the country, including in Appalachia and among Chicanos in the Southwest. And so King King came pretty early with this idea of the Poor People's Campaign, like pretty soon after it was announced. And, you know, one of the things that is really great about getting to look through the American Friends Service Committee archives is that there's these really great notes that sort of talk about, you know, not just the outcomes of the meetings, but document the kind of conversation that happened in the meetings. And so it ends up being this, like this glimpse into, you know, sort of what, what, you know, the ideas in the, in the speeches and the ideas in the sermons, you sort of see the behind the scenes organizing conversation in the notes and sort of way that, the way that it all gets tied together. Um, And so, you know, there is this, you know, again, this idea that, you know, pulling together people who are already organizing in their community around, you know, whatever, however that shows up in their community. So in the Southwest, it was around land and the theft of land and and the violations of past treaties and people being denied uh, the full rights of the treaties. And then in Appalachia, you know, people organizing around, um, you know, communities where they've lost like lots of, you know, jobs, cold, cold jobs, you know, evaporating around the mechanization of coal and those kinds of issues. And so, you know, tying people who are already organizing in those communities together, AFSC was 
was a was a link to a lot of that organizing. And then Lind actually lent like direct organizing support to the Poor People's Campaign and would, you know, lend their staff to the process. They were also there in that Atlanta meeting uh in uh in you know right before King was assassinated and um played a really important role in in pulling the poor people's came, campaign together. All right. Yeah, not not surprised given um sort of the anti-war stance that King had at that time given the yeah, yeah the long tradition of sort of the, the peace churches uh, including uh the Quaker church. Yeah. Um so I guess throughout this period, I think th- this is when uh, King is often called sort of the radical King. Um, you know, Cornell West has edited a book uh, with that title, for example. I think he was the editor. Uh, so um, y- you reference, I, th- I think, some of the radical pieces or pieces of his sort of political project at that time, like his an endorsement of the, quote, guaranteed annual income, which, um, as, as we've discussed, could easily just be called uh, universal basic income, which sort of hit the mainstream in the 2020 uh, U.S. presidential campaign. Um, so I'm wondering if you could talk about, like, what was King's, quote, radical revolution of values, sort of this radical project? Yeah, I mean, there's been... There's, you know, like uh, Cornell West anthology, which is a good one for, you know, lifting up key parts of King's work, you know, from across his career that, you know, that doesn't end up on a monument in the Washington Mall, you know, or, you know, corporations don't quote it in their commercials in, you know, around King Day. But that, you know, that where King was, you know, throughout his time, throughout his life, tying together um, pretty radical stances on poverty, war, um, and and racism, and then you know. So this, the my work here looks particularly at this last period of his life and some of some of what he says, both privately and publicly, around the need for a, what he calls a radical revolution of values. He also talks about it in this period as a shift from civil rights to human rights. And so when he talks about the triple evils and, you know, not letting those, you know, the ways that they're tied together and hold that they sort of glue each other together, that racism, poverty and war, like depend on each other in order to survive, you know, in order to be, to be sort of like in their systemic character. Um, And so they have to be addressed in their interrelatedness. Um, King talks about that as a, as a move to a human rights movement. And I think he also thinks about that in terms of, you know, addressing not just, you know, political, changing political, access to political rights, but that this restructuring of the economy and and even the restructuring of political relationships. Um, And so I think that that's some of what people talk about when they talk about the radical King. Um, You know, King was... Uh, it, it's unfortunate to sort of not think about civil rights as also being radical in a in a society where they are systematically denied. Um, but the you know this you know he's often sort of put up next to like compared to Malcolm X, and so King is the reformist integrationist, and Malcolm X is the you know the radical black power person and. Like I think that that doesn't do justice to the you know to either figure. Um, so I you know I one of the 
my key teachers in graduate school was James Cone. And so he teaches this class, Malcolm and Martin, and sort of talks about the how both of both figures are sort of, you know, flattened by that kind of comparison and, you know, really trying to think about the fullness of their political and theological visions and, and assessments and, and what they've offered. And so I think pulling, you know, not letting King get flattened into being a reformist integrationist. And I think a lot of times that's about the way that he is used and is useful in um, sort of making systemic racism something that's just about rights and not tied to the longer history of the United States and something that's not tied to inequality and poverty and, and not at the heart of like imperialism and, and international relationships that are also, um, you know, that King talked about directly and talked about uh, the inequality and sort of, you know, he said, you know, we form relationships with, you know, the landed gentry in foreign countries and through that partnership extract wealth. And so he's talking about these neo-colonial relationships and and then he he points to the freedom struggles, the the anti-colonial freedom struggles that are happening internationally in, in his day and says that the poor people's campaign actually has to be tied to those global freedom struggles and that people across the world are rising up, poor people are coming together and rising up and 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 could a campaign of the poor in the United States be tied and connected to those global uh, anti-colonial freedom struggles in a way they could transform the whole world. Um, and so his, and, and then of course, on top of that, a critique of Vietnam and talking about that it's a, a cruel manipulation of the poor, that the, that the poor in the United States are sent to fight and die fighting the poor of Vietnam. And so he talks about that, that cruel manipulation of the poor and, you know, it ties it again to, you know, poor black people being sent to fight at Vietnam for rights that they don't, that they don't have when they return to the United States. And, you know, he's also making this connection uh, with, with poor whites being sent to Vietnam to, to fight for, um, to fight for Vietnamese. And so this cruel manipulation of the poor is, is both domestic and global. Um, and so the, I think that these, this call for, you know, to shift from a human to, from a civil rights movement to a human rights movement is part of this political assessment that he has of the scale of change that's necessary. Um, and it's, it's not a, it's not in disjuncture from his past organizing, but it, it's sort of a, sort of, this is the moment that we're in, like, out of what we've accomplished so far, let's turn and assess and take seriously how far it is that we have to go. And he says that this is not to diminish the sacrifices that we've already made and you know, not to ignore the lives and livelihoods that have been lost, but to take seriously what he says that there's that the work ahead of us is even harder and it'll take even more loss of of life and more loss of livelihood. Um, but that it is it is necessary. And and so he starts to talk about things like, as you said, a, a guaranteed annual income. And this was this was an, also a demand of the National Welfare Rights Organization. 
is this idea that that the economy has moved to a point where we have the capacity to meet everybody's needs. And so if the economy, even with really low unemployment, uh, is not actually meeting everyone's basic needs, then we need some some way of intervening there and addressing the inadequacies of the economy on on the the distribution end of of what we've accomplished. And he said it's not, you know, the capacity now is it's not a a failure of you know having the means, but it's a it's a failure, it's a moral failure, it's a failure of will. And so those who would be you know in the position to to transform that are those whose whose needs are not being met. And this is where it comes to to the campaign of the poor. And we hear echoes uh, very clearly in in the current poor people's campaign, um, given sort of the that moral is embedded in the full name of <laughs> what I like yeah. to call the poor people's campaign 2018. Or yeah. 2018 plus, but um, what you like to call <laughs> the full name. Thank you. <laughs> yes, um, it's a, uh, it is a bit of a mouthful, but a national call for moral revival. Exactly. So a national call for moral revival, right? And uh, I think we we live in in this country. There are many communities that are uncomfortable with thinking about morality or religion or spirituality, um, but. I, th- I think, you know, even if you have to frame these issues sort of in an ethical sort of way, I, I think that that can speak to people. And I, I, I think folks are, are ready for a critique that is not just economic, that is not just sort of policy based, um, but actually thinks about humanity and sort of the ethical, you know, obligations to your fellow citizen, to your fellow human. Um, so, yeah, I appreciate that about your work and also about the, the current Poor People's Campaign. Um, so yeah, sort of building on, on the connection now between 68 and 2018 and the ongoing campaign um, that we see now. Uh, so, so why do you think environmental, quote, environmental devastation, um, unquote, has been added as a core issue to the current Poor People's Campaign? Like, why is it now, I think, one of the four evils, if you will, rather than the, the three evils that King identified in 68? Yeah, so this is, you know, it's it was so interesting to, to do this work on 1968. And there were actually a couple of glimpses, even in 1968, around people starting to talk about the environmental crisis. Um, and it in a little way sort of makes the point, you know, so it was, it was poor people themselves who were talking about how the, the sources of water around them were poisoned uh, and bringing those issues up, even though it wasn't one of the official issues in 1968. Um, and so I really appreciated seeing, and then the, oh, the other place where it showed up was actually um, migrant farm workers talking about, the way the the chemicals that were being used and that they were being exposed to chemicals that were being used in the agricultural production process and sort of flagging that and they being really um, prescient about seeing, you know, that those chemicals were dangerous. Um, and so the, you know, the campaign, the Poor Bills campaign, National Call for Moral Revival 2018 um, has has environmental crisis as one of the key 
interrelated, inter interlocking injustices or interrelated evils. Um, and I think that this existential crisis of of uh, climate change, you know, climate, you know, instability, water, continue, you know, access to water, clean water, in like, and just in every way is tied into the um, poverty, racism, and militarism. And so I think that it it makes a lot of sense to pull that uh, that thread together today because it is such an important like place in which. Uh, you know, poverty is expressed, injustice is expressed. You know, so I'm I I live in Arizona now. You know, and and the the crisis of water and the crisis of climate it just cannot be ignored. And so the um, you know, and it's one of the you know actually five evils that the Poor People's Campaign today talks about. And the fifth one is um, distorted moral narratives. So talking about religious nationalism and Christian nationalism uh, and distorted moral narratives being what what also is in with those interrelated evils and sort of holding in place, holding holding them all in place and, um, you know, tying together and and blocking a, a real moral response to racism, poverty, war and environmental crisis. Yes, I, I forgot there are five five evils at least. Yeah. <laughs> Although if you read, you know, the longer platforms, right, the the issues get really, uh, uh, what's the word? I don't want to say complicated because that can be seen as diminishing, but you know, they they get complex pretty quickly, right? And there's there's many sort of interlocking issues. Uh, but in any case, uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly. So, so um, as we come to a close, uh, I think it's fair to say that this is a book of scholarship written by a scholar and an activist. Uh, would you say that's that's a fair uh, representation of you and your book? I think that's fair. Yes. Okay. Um, so so could you talk a bit about your experience um, helping to co-found the Kairos Center for Religions, Rights, and Social Justice? Uh, which, as you know, is one of the anchor organizations of the Poor People's Campaign 2018. Yeah. So when I graduated from undergrad, I worked as a community organizer for a few years in Chicago and had um, a really good experience and training in community organizing, Alinsky model community organizing. Um, but had, you know, always with my my mind towards, you know, more graduate work in religion and trying to think about the relationship between religion and social change and the kinds of, um, you know, the ways that we're influenced and impacted by religion. It had been in, in, in large part because it had been such a huge impact on, on my life. I, I grew up United Methodist uh, in, in North Georgia, outside of Atlanta. And, you know, it was really the experiences of, of service and of like thinking about the other um, even though it was a pretty conservative church, you know, that that service was always a really important part of what it meant to be to to be a Christian and to be in that, you know, to be a congregation and community together. And so when I started being introduced later to, you know, thinking more critically about racism and sexism, um, that in some ways, even though it wasn't what the emphasis had been in my congregation, it fit with the emphasis on the other and the, the thinking about what it what it means to be a community in a world together. And so, 
you know, religion continued to be an important part of how I thought about who I was and how I thought about what a community can and should be. And so I, you know, that sort of merged with the organizing experience. And so I went to Union Theological Seminary to to sort of get to spend time with the relationship there and think about how all of that fits together. And I met when I arrived actually during orientation, you know, I so I came for my master's program and they had to have an orientation fair in the in the quad. And um Liz Theo Harris, now Reverend Dr. Liz Theo Harris and Willie Baptist were there, you know, standing by a folding table talking about the work that they were doing organizing around welfare rights. And so they come out of this welfare rights tradition and had been organizing as part of the Kensington Welfare Rights Union, which had a direct lineage back actually to 1968 and the Poor People's Campaign. And so they introduced me to this welfare rights organizing model, um, human rights organizing, uh, and this national network of community and religious leaders who were organizing around um, this idea of organizing across difference, uh, the leadership of the poor, and how the leadership of the poor can be a social force to to a moral and political social force to to transform the nation. Um, and they had started a, a group at the at Union Seminary called the Poverty Initiative. And it, in many ways, is sort of how you were just describing my work that it it was at the intersection of of both scholarship and academic, you know, the academy and the community organizing and sort of bringing people who were doing graduate level work and, you know, future religious leaders into relationship with community organizing and then bringing community organizers into the world of getting to think about and study the Bible and study theology. And there were all these amazing, brilliant theological thinkers um, who didn't have the opportunity because it's so expensive to go to graduate school and even so expensive to go to college, um, you know, didn't have the opportunity to study, you know, in a seminary, but were clearly playing this role of of religious leader and just incredible theological thinkers in the community organizing work that they were doing. And so there was this exchange that happened in both directions between getting to do exegesis and do theological work and do community organizing work and be really rooted in both places and have the exchange go both ways. Um, and so that is, I think, sort of the the instigator for then, you know, trying to doing doing a PhD there and really thinking about the poor people's campaign in a in a systematic way, like getting to you know, to have the time and the resources of the dissertation process to to spend time with, you know, 1968, and then also thinking with others about what 1968 means for our organizing work today. Um, and so, you know, most of most of what I was thinking about and doing, it wasn't actually my ideas. I just the opportunity to sit down with and spend time with the the material and like find all of these old sermons and and speeches from the last years of King's life and and read them with others and and listen and learn from how others were reading about that moment and how they saw it relating to their their organizing work today. I think that's at the heart of, you know, what the Cairo Center uh, does at 
at Union Seminary now and their relationship to the Poor People's Campaign um, and just the kinds of, of scholarship and organizing work that's happening, you know, in, in these community organizing settings across the country today. Yes. Well, thank you. I, I have to. Um, so that was my guest, Colleen Wessel McCoy, author of Freedom Church of the Poor, Martin Luther King Jr.'s Poor People's Campaign, published by Fortress Press. Thank you. And yeah, see you again. I've loved this conversation. Thank you.